The book, Deep Down Dark, tells the true story of the 33 miners in Chile back in 2010, where they were 2,000 feet underground for 69 days. A chunk of a mountain 550 feet tall, twice the weight of the Empire State Building, collapsed within the San Jose mine, sealing the men in that cave for more than, you know, 2,000 feet down. No way to get to the surface. Any thought of uh, drilling down would cause another cave-in, and uh, it was reported that they had a chance to get out of that cave for, uh, it was less than 2%. So it looked pretty grim for these men. They knew their situation was tough. They knew that it was nearly impossible to get out on top again. And so what did these men start doing? They started thinking about their lives. They thought about the people they loved. They thought about the decisions they had made with their lives and how if they had the opportunity to do it over again, they would do it differently. And they couldn't help but think about what happens and what would happen to them when they died. And so uh, these men realized that there was another miner in that group, Jose Enriquez. He was 54 years old. He had been a miner since the 1970s. And the other miners realized this one simple thing, and that is that Jose had a relationship with Jesus Christ. He was a follower of Christ. And so they asked him if they would, if he would pray for them because they knew their situation was pretty desperate. And so Jose had the miners gather around. Uh, They knelt and he prayed, Lord, have mercy on us. We need you to take charge of our situation. And Jose made it clear to God that these men were desperate and that God was their only hope. And after he finished praying, something began to happen with these men. They looked deep within their core, and they realized the areas that they had made some wrong decisions, and they began to confess their sins out loud. One of the men confessed that he was an alcoholic, that... As he looked at his life, how it had destroyed his family and himself. Another man confessed that he had an anger issue, that his temper usually got the best of him. And, of course, there were negative results because of it. Another man confessed that he had been a horrible father to his children. And so he went on and on with these men. One after another, they began to look back on their life and And tell God, man, man, I have messed up. And in their true desperation, they cried out to God. And God, as always, shows up when you become desperate. Day after day, having nowhere else to go, Jose began to tell them about Jesus Christ. His relationship with Christ. He began to tell them Bible stories. And the men hung on to every word that Jose Spoke. They prayed from their hearts and they worshiped and they cried out to God for help. And they promised God that if he would rescue them from the terror of that particular cave, 
they would make changes and live their lives differently. And so, as always, God hears the cries of the desperate. And after 69 days, revival had been breaking out inside that dark cave um, as they were crying out to God and sensing his grace. A rescue operation, of course, was taking place. An elite drill team gathered, and the Chile miners were rescued. God did a cool thing. Now, the thing I like about Deep Down Dark is that it tells a story that the media never said, never told you about. They told you about the men being rescued, but I just want to remind you that God is always working. People may not tell you about it, but I want you to know you may be down in a deep, dark cave today, but God sees you 2,000 feet below grade. He sees you. He knows exactly what you're feeling. He hears the cry of your desperate heart. And he wants to help. 33 men in one cave. One God made the difference. And this morning we're going to take a look at Ephesians 4 as we continue from last Sunday. And on the back of your program, there's an outline where you can fill in those blanks. Um, I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 4. We're going to pick it up uh, right at verse 1. And uh, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table. They're free. And we encourage you to take it, read it, and apply it to your life. Man, that's it's happening in my life, and I know it can happen in yours as well. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, this is Paul writing, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults. Because of your love, make every effort to keep yourselves united in in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body... In one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift. And in your Bibles, there's a footnote there that says it means grace as well. through the generosity of Christ. And so, on the back of your program, let's, let's hit number one, Live United. We, uh, that's where we concluded last Sunday. Verse three, um, we need to live united. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus. It's modern-day Turkey today. Um, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Make every effort... Paul is saying, and, and we just a quick summary, the first three chapters in, in Ephesians, uh, Paul was presenting how great and big and awesome God is. And he listed everything God has done for followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was a huge list. And so he transitions now into chapter 4 to say, now 
after hearing and seeing and experiencing what God has done in your life, what are you going to do about it? You, your, your name is in the book of life, man. You have a relationship with Christ. You can't earn your way or buy your way in. You have put your faith in Christ. Jesus paid it all. But out of response, responding to the greatness of God, there should be something going on inside you that you want to do something to say, God, thank you. And that's where Paul is, is submitting this for you and I to make every effort. God's made every effort to reach you. Now he's saying, now you've got to make every effort out of gratitude to God to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Make every effort means diligent, be diligent, hurry towards. And that word keep, keep yourselves. The keep means to guard, to persevere, to protect. Unity is, is like a fire. It, it tends to die out if you don't tend it, if you don't tend to the fire. Uh, so we have a fireplace in our house. And um, it, it's a real fireplace. You know, it's not one of those, um, you see the picture, fires, you know, this is a real fire. Um, You have to put wood in it, which means when the logs start to go down, you have to put another log in. So that's tending, tending the fire. If you want to keep that fire going, you have to put another log on, right? That's that's the imagery Paul is saying. You got to keep the, put another log on there to keep the unity within uh, the body of Christ. And, um, and binding ourselves together with peace. Last Sunday, we concluded with the, um, with the fire ants, you know, where uh, studies have been done with the fire ant. You drop one fire ant in some water, and he'll try and tread water. You know, he's calling out for a, a, a life preserver, but nobody gives it to him. And ultimately, he gets fatigued, and he ends up drowning. But the researchers also found when you put a group of fire ants together, they, they have their claws on their legs and instinctively they reach out to the next fire ant and they grab onto them. And we've got these nifty suction cups that God's put into these fire ants as well. And with those suction cups, they latch on to each other and they become a floating life raft. Isn't that cool? And so Paul is saying that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you were not made to live your your life with Christ all by yourself. You need to latch on to the people God's brought into your life. Because if you don't latch on, you're going to become a casualty. And I can say yes to that, friends. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen the casualties. I've gone into spiritual hospitals. And it's sad. And I want to encourage you as Paul encouraged the church at Ephesus to latch on to other followers of Christ. Last Sunday night we had Awaken here. Awaken is an hour of prayer, worship, reflection. And I can tell you 
uh, I'm not in, inflating the night. It was, it was a profound hour in God's presence. I was impacted greatly by it. And prior to Awaken, someone from church mentioned how tough it was to get here at that time. There was stuff happening in their life, and, 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 um, and we we're talking about the fire ants, but isn't it cool that we can encourage each other? And, and they said just by being there in a short amount of time, their attitude had changed for the good. You see? And I was reminded of the fact how God had impacted me. You know, it was like a mountaintop experience. And yet Monday, the next day, I felt spiritually flat. Which reminded me, I cannot hoard God's presence. I need, I need to, it was a reminder that I needed to get with God on Monday. Sunday was gone. I don't know how people do it from Sunday to Sunday, friend. How do you survive? How do you thrive in a culture that is aggressively going after followers of Jesus Christ? How does that happen? And so Paul is saying that we need to live united. And and, um, so let's do that. And then he he moves from uh, verse 3 to give us a framework, united framework, uh, in verses 4 through 6. Let's let's read that together. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, but do you pick up a theme from those few verses. Anybody pick it up? It's not a trick question. What, what, what would that theme be? One. One. That's why we titled this morning's talk One. Because it was pretty obvious what Paul was trying to get to. One. One. And Paul uses that word one seven times in these few verses. And he's, he's, he's pushing the envelope uh, with unity using that number one. We are one. We need to maintain one. We need to pursue one. And he goes on to give uh, those reasons why in the next few verses. Now, one conveys a sense of unity. And and Paul's talking to the church. He's writing to the church. He's, he's a prisoner. He's, he's, he's chained to a Roman guard. He's not going anywhere, just like those 33 chili miners. They weren't going anywhere. And it's interesting when you're not going anywhere, I think it's natural to start looking inside your life, just like those miners did. How's it going, dude? You know, we talk to ourselves. And it's usually when we're not going anywhere that God can speak to us and he, he can pinpoint areas that maybe we need to look at, to invest in. 
Because, man, life gets busy, doesn't it? But when you're not going anywhere, Paul wasn't going anywhere. And he was communicating to the church, you, as a body of Christ, you have put your faith in Christ because of the gospel. Now, I'm going to give you an inside look at me, what's been going through my head the last few weeks. And it's the words most important. Because when I, when I look at, you know, when we uh, are out and about look in crowds and with people walking by, etc., the words most important keep flashing through my mind. Because when it's all said and done, just like the miners in, in Chile, you see, most important became very important to them about their soul when they weren't going anywhere. We tend to lose that. We, we tend to, you know, get caught up in routines and this is what's important to me, you know? Like, like middle of the night, Wednesday, Tuesday, yeah, actually early morning, Wednesday, uh, what was most important for me was to get to the store to buy uh, a water pump because my garage was flooded, you know? And it was interesting that in the, it was in the middle of the night that I need to go buy a water pump. Now, why don't I think about that in the daylight? I don't know. I don't get it. But that was what was most important. So, so Wednesday morning, I went to the store and God, and I thought, why didn't I do that a long time ago? See, God, God can wake you and I up in the middle of the night to, to remind us of what's most important about our souls. Because it's usually when you're in bed, you're not going anywhere. And Paul gives us what's most important, 1 Corinthians, because this is what, this is what happened at the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, I passed on to you what was most important. And we can, we can pause there and say, Paul, thank you for passing on to the church, modern-day church, not only in, in Wisconsin, but around the world, this is what's most important. What had also been passed on to me? Paul, coming out of a, a life of sin, even though he was very religious, and he's in prison, he would bring Christians to prison and have them executed because of their faith in Christ. That was his background. That's what he had to live with. You see, so you, you might be sitting here this morning beating yourself up because of a choice or decision you made last week and you feel disconnected from God. You need to confess that sin like those miners did and be reconciled and move on. Don't let it paralyze you. It didn't paralyze Paul and it very well could have. And so he's writing to what's most important. And this is what it is. He says, Christ died for our sins. That, that, that should be, that should be a, a big yo, right? Thank you, Lord. 
He died for my sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried. That's when Satan thought he had him. Aha, but he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. That's the gospel right there. Jesus died for my sin. He was buried and he rose on the third day. That's what's most important. And as a parent, that should be most important in your life and you pass that on to your children. Because all of their achievements and whatever accolades or whatever the case may be, man, when it's all said and done, what's most important? It's about your soul. And we are reminded of that, of those 33 chili miners. How about it? God, will you make me desperate to look at my soul about what's important in my life? Is, is that most important in your life this morning? Can you, can you put that thermometer into your core right now? What's it going to read out? Mm. Lord, my relationship with you is most important. This morning, before the gatherings, I thought about a man who's here today, who's been, who's been battling for years. He's been in a battle for years. And he hasn't given up. And he's pressing on. And I thought, when I thought of him, I thought, man, what a gift to the body of Christ. Because he's kept what's most important in the forefront. You see that? We need people like that. To model what's most important. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. So, so where are we? I got, I'm out, I've been talking. We're, uh, we're on the framework, right? Did we get, did get, did we get to the sub point one yet? Not yet. <laughs> one body. One body, sub-point one. Let's get on it. For there is one body. And, and what's cool here is Paul doesn't use the word church, but it's a metaphor. Body is a metaphor for church in the New Testament. And I'm grateful for the church of Jesus Christ that it's universal. In other words, it's not just happening in Wisconsin or the United States, but it's happening all around the world. I've got a newsletter here from John Erickson a missionary to Guinea, Africa, man. And he's talking about what God's doing. They have a clinic and they're adding beds and they're adding on to their facility, reaching out to the Muslims in that, in that area. And every day they preach the gospel while they're waiting in line to see a doctor. Aren't you glad for that? The body of Christ all around the world today, people are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, that's good. And Paul talks about the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Aren't you glad for that? You're not, you're not floating out there like one fire ant, man. You are part of the body of Christ. You are connected to the body of Christ. And unfortunately, friends, man, in our culture today, 
the body, the church has become not so important. It's not so important. And I go back to my dad who modeled it. We never questioned about going to church on Sundays, man. It was, it was, it was automatic. Sunday morning, you get up, you eat your cold cereal, you get dressed, you go to church. Boom. It's the way it was. No debate about, I don't want to go. We're going. I am so grateful for my father that he modeled the value and worth of the body of Christ. The church. How about it? And so, and so we see that um, Tom Rayner, who does, you know, he does all kinds of research for uh, the church in America, and, and he had a research team go out with uh, hundreds of church members, and they, they surveyed uh, folks that had attended and started going to church five years earlier, and then the st- church staff would, would uh, identify those who attended worship services only. Um, versus those that got involved beyond Sunday morning. They found out that those involved in their church more than Sunday mornings were five times more likely to be active in the church five years later than those that just attended Sunday morning. More than 83% of those who joined and were involved in a small group were still active in the churches, but only 16% of those who attended worship services only remained in the churches five years later. Can I tell you a little secret? And I've already told you the secret once. You are not created to live your walk with Christ in isolation. We need each other. We need each other. And I just want to encourage you, if, if, you've been, uh, if you've been a spectator, you know, if you've been uh, in the bleachers, I'm telling you, I, I'm so glad for our life group on Tuesday mornings at Schubert's, you know, with those dudes. I look forward to it. It's good to be part of another group, you know. So, G. K. Chesterton, he's a theologian from a while ago over in England, wrote how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. G.K. Chesterton, that's a good word, man. You see, when we, we, we think church is a spectator sport, and it's all about me, you know. I'm up in the bleachers, and I can, I'm here to be served. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, church is not a country club, you know, where I come to get served about my needs. Church, church is not a spectator sport, and it's not about you, friend. It is about pointing people to Jesus. 
looking for opportunities, even on Sunday mornings, to look for people and encourage them, you know? To jump in that water with the other fire ants, man, you know, and encourage each other. Church isn't about dwelling on the flaws of the church. Listen, every church has flaws. I I can guarantee it. You hang around a church long enough, you'll see the flaws. It's just like when you get married, you're... Oh, my husband, he's perfect. He's the most wonderful man. Until you live with him for more than a day. (laughs) And then all these flaws start jumping out at you, man. Boom! And so as a a spouse, we we can major on the flaws, you know, and just live in a environment of conflict, or we can say, let's major on their strengths. You know? I'm so fortunate. I'm so blessed to have my spouse like that. You know? Well, you and I have that same choice to make about church. We can major on the flaws, or we can look at the strengths and say, man, I'm so glad. I go there. I'm plugged in there. I'm serving there. Right? So, so that's where Paul's coming from. One body. Man, is it important to get, get into that. Number two, one spirit. There is one body and one spirit. The Holy Spirit does the same work in each one of us. First of all, it convicts us. Man, I remember the day when, when I was convicted of running from God. I had been running away from God, pushing him away. And the Holy Spirit just kept, man, you got you to... Gotta, Surrender. You need to put your faith in Christ. He convicts us. John 16, 8. Jesus said when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and the coming judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said, it's good, I'm leaving because I'm going to leave you the the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do this. So he convicts us. We, We experience that reconciliation to Christ, that rebirth. And then once we put our faith in Christ... The Holy Spirit doesn't say, I'll see you later, dude. But the Holy Spirit is is working in you to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's his goal. Because we know we can't do that on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to help us, right? And the Holy Spirit does that, man. It's, It's called sanctification. It's a lifelong process because nobody is, you know, could say, I... I'm perfect spiritually. The Holy Spirit can leave now. He can go on to somebody else that needs him more than I do. No, I, I need him. And I will need him until I'm in glory. That's for sure. So, um, and he gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Everybody have those down good? That's why that's part of that sanctification process. The Holy Spirit lives in you, friend. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? He lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in me. Think about that. 
The Holy Spirit lives in me. Thank you. Three, one hope, verse 4c. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. That's where Paul gives you a hint what kind of hope he's talking about. In our culture today, you know, we, we think, well, I hope so. You know, we think, I hope, I hope this is going to happen. I hope. But Paul is saying he's looking to the future because he recognizes that as followers of Christ, we all come from a different kind of past. We all have our own stories from the past and the stories we're living out in the present. But he's looking to the future because there's coming a day when we will all be in heaven together. That's the future he's pointing to. The future of heaven. That's the one hope. Paul is talking to the church and he said, look to the future and look to the coming of the Lord. And in Philippians 1.6, he says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Jesus is returning. He's coming back. Now, when we look to the future, uh, we can become divided on that because you have different camps about the coming of the Lord. Some people believe that Jesus is coming before the seven-year tribulation spoken about in, in the book of Revelation. Or some people believe that Jesus is coming in the middle of the tribulation. And some people believe he's going to come at the end of the tribulation. Well, let's not disagree on that. Let's simply say we know Jesus is coming. And Jesus himself said, you need to be ready for my coming. Well, let's put a stake in the ground on that and go for it. How about it? Yeah? Yeah, man. So, so... Um, I like the Bible scholars identified 1,845 references to Jesus coming back the second time. How many of you would say that's a bunch? That's a bunch, right? In fact, Jesus himself spoke about him coming back the second time 21 times in the New Testament. Now you would say there's a pretty good chance he's coming back. Wouldn't you? And so that's why Paul is saying, look to the future, because Jesus is coming. He's coming. A couple days ago, I read Psalm 94, 19, and, and if you have your Bibles, you can, you can just keep your finger in the Ephesians here. But I thought, man, what a good verse to echo what Paul's writing about here. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. Let's read that again. When doubts filled my mind, do you ever have doubts? Hmm? I have doubts. The psalmist had doubts. That's why it's in the Bible. That's the cool thing about the Bible. It doesn't sanctify all the negative stuff. You know, it doesn't hide behind a veil. It puts it right there. Hey, I had doubts. 
the writer of Psalms. I had doubts. But your comfort, God, gave me renewed hope and cheer. Isn't that good? Thank you, Lord, for that renewed hope. Because I expect the Lord's return. I don't hope so. I expect it. Number four, one Lord, verse 5a. There is one Lord. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, what's, what's cool about that is Jesus in John 14, 6, red letter, that's him talking. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that liberating. Because I don't have to keep going to the garage doors to find out what's behind this garage door. You know? I'm hoping this is the right garage door. Listen, if you lived in India, let, let's just say we all lived in India. Do you know how many gods are available to people in India? 33 million. 33 million. Now, how would you like to live your life? Why, well, I, I hope I've got the right God. I'm on 396,000. You know, 33 million. And Jesus can put your heart at rest. He is the way. He is the Lord of all. Man, I love it. One Lord, one Lord. Colossians 1.27, Christ lives in you. Not only does the Holy Spirit live in you, Christ lives in you. For which we're grateful. Thank you, Lord, for living in us. 5, 1 faith, verse 5b, there's one Lord, one faith. One faith, what's that all about? The good news is how Jesus um, saves people. He, uh, he reconciles them into a, into a relationship with God. Sin cut off that, that relationship, but he, God did something cool. He sent Jesus. One faith. Jesus found us. Jesus gave us justification. So when you put your faith in Christ, it was just as if you had never sinned in the eyes of God. How does that happen? Because Jesus paid for your sin and my sin. And when we put our faith in him, he takes our sin. And we confess it and he forgives us. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness, all of it. And in exchange for that, he puts his righteousness inside me and you. So when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as righteous. Woo! Isn't that cool? Justification. And man alive. That's the faith that God deposits in us. I, I read this the other day, man. I was, I'm going through Romans now. And, I, and a couple days ago, I was on Romans 3. And I can tell you something. It is so encouraging to be reminded of what Jesus did for you and for me. I, I just became fresh again, man, when I read the chapter. I was just thinking, Lord, you have been so good to me. Thank you for what you have done for me, Lord. And Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Verse 25, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. 
People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Verse 27, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Can we boast? Look at me, look at me. Paul says, no, no, you can't. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. We're made right with God. You're made right with God by putting your faith, all of your weight on what Jesus did for you. That's it. That's it. And then Paul says one baptism, number six, verse 5c. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And what Paul's talking about is what baptism symbolizes because he recognizes that there's too many followers of Christ that try to go undercover. You know, they want to be CIA agents, spies. Nobody knows I'm a spy, hopefully. And the Christian community has kind of taken up that mentality that I'm going to go undercover for Jesus so nobody knows I'm a follower of Christ. And Paul says, dude, that's not the way to do it. You have to go public. When you get baptized, you give a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. You go public. One baptism, and if you have, you have a piece of cloth that's white and you drop it in some red dye, what happens to that white cloth? It turns red. How does that happen? Well, the cloth has identified with the dye. When you go into the water of water baptism, you are identifying with Christ. Romans 6, 3, when we were joined with Christ, Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. If you've put your faith in Christ and you haven't been baptized in water, it's time to do it. We've got one coming up in May where we fill the tank with ice-cold water and see how serious you are. I love water baptism services, man. Number seven, one God. Verse six. Now listen, listen to what Paul says here. One God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. What's the key word in verse 6? All. That's right. So this verse is focusing on God the Father. You know, once again, when you step out of Christianity, there's so many options for people to join a cult um, or another religion. You know, you have all these options. And Paul is identifying God the Father, that he's over all, everything, and all of creation. In all, that means he lives within his people, through all. He's present, pervasive in all creation. Now, just a footnote, Paul isn't talking about pantheism. And pantheism simply means that God is everywhere so we can worship nature. Now, let me... Let me just hit this for a moment, that in our culture, 
not only in the United States, but in Europe, uh, Wiccan, Wicca worship, Wicca white witchcraft, Wicca, W-I-C-C-A, worshiping nature is exploding. And in our culture, you'll find that, that as, as human life, we are being uh, leveled with, with, with the animal kingdom, that the animals have probably more worth than human beings. You go to the womb, a baby in the womb, has, it's a tough place to live in our culture today. When New York signed legislation that a baby full term can be aborted, can be killed, And they applauded that legislation. When you take out, a, out of a culture, things go loopy. And when man and woman have been created in the image of God and you, you lower their worth and value and you elevate the, the, the lives of an animal, that's creepy. And instead, in Romans 1, 20, Paul talked about God used creation to, as, as a megaphone to the world to say, look at this incredible creation that God created. There has to be a creator. Well, people have become foolish, and instead of worshiping the creator, they're worshiping the creation. They're worshiping nature. That's why it's on the rise. They don't want to worship the one true God. They want to worship a tree or whatever else that comes along with it. And so Paul is not endorsing that kind of worship, believe me. And he's not talking about universalism, where God is the Father of all. And then he's going to save everybody. Listen, the heart of the Father is he wants everyone to be saved, but he's given you and I the freedom to choose and reject him. And until we put our faith in Christ, he is not our Heavenly Father. Satan is your heavenly father. So you get to choose who you're going to serve. You can have Satan as your father, or you can have God Almighty as your father. I vote for God, my heavenly father. I put my trust in him. No turning back. And so so Paul uses that word all. That he's supreme over all and through all. Now, what's cool here, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. You know, in this text, verse 4, one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord. Verse 6, one God and Father. The three in one. And he's identifying the unity they have. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the cool thing is, the Holy Spirit submits himself and points to Jesus. And Jesus submits himself and he points to the Father. He's always talking about the Father. And Jesus submitted to the Holy Spirit when he was led out to the, to the desert to be tempted for 40 days in, in Matthew 4. And then the Father, when, when Jesus was baptized in the Mount of Transfiguration, he's saying, this is my son, I'm endorsing him. Listen to him. I'm proud of what he's doing. Man, you look at that. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. That's the picture of the unity in the body of Christ that Paul's talking about. And number three, gifted by Christ. You and I, friend, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
Verse 7, however, he has given each one of us a special gift. Footnote in your Bible, grace. He has given us special grace through the generosity of Christ. I am so glad I serve a God who is not stingy. Who doesn't say, I got this in storage until you do a better job at following me. He doesn't do that, man. You put your faith in Christ, he dumps the gift on you because he loves you. And he loves to give because he's a generous God. So, that gift, Romans 8.32, since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all, won't he also give us everything else? Aren't you glad for that? That's the God we serve. And when you look at the text... Paul is presenting to you and to me the challenge of of keeping unity in the body of Christ and the united framework that he walked through, the foundation in which we can stand unified, and then being gifted by Christ. Gifted by Christ to what? To represent him. I'm so glad that Jose was in that cave 2,000 feet below ground so that the rest of the men had someone to go to to point them to Jesus, aren't you? Ron Hutchcraft was the director of Youth for Christ when I was in, in high school back in Chicago, and he's still... Solid for God today. I respect him. And he talks about a ministry that he's heavily involved in with the Native Americans in America. And he has met a man named Chad who was raised to be the last traditional chief in his tribe. And like many Native Americans over the years, he was sent to a religious boarding school in the name of Christ and forced to dress and speak like a white man. And if he accidentally used his native language, he was punished for it. And Chad, as he was growing up, became very angry at what was being done to him, his identity being taken from him. And so he became so angry that he enlisted in the military to go to Vietnam, and his goal was to be killed in combat. That's what he wanted. He became a Navy SEAL. He was captured by the Viet Cong. He was tortured in a POW camp. And finally he was released and he returned home. The anger exploded inside of him to the point where he became a gang leader in a major city where he had 10,000 people in his organization. He was stabbed twice, he was shot three times, and he found himself on an operating table in an emergency room to try and save his life. And Chad remembers vividly what went on that day because he had an out-of-the-body experience where he was actually looking down on his body while the doctors were operating on him. And while he was looking down, there was someone, he said, dressed in a white robe with a gold sash that spoke to him and said, I died for you, Chad. I want you to give your life to me. Now, how did that get Chad's attention? I can tell you why. Because they spoke in Chad's native language. 
And that night, Chad realized that Jesus could not be just a white man's God. As Chad said, no white man's God would have spoken to me in my language. Do you know God's speaking to you in your language right now? He knows exactly what you need. And that was back in 1996. And Ron tells how Chad is serving the Native American community, telling his life story, the gifts that God has given to him and the grace that God bestowed upon him in rescuing his life. He's out rescuing Native Americans for God's honor, pointing people to Jesus, just like Jose did 2,000 feet underground. That's exactly why Jesus has you right here and right now. And maybe you are like Chad where you are full of anger and you've been running from God. Maybe you're ready to receive Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe that's you. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity we have to serve you, Lord. I think about those 33 chilly miners. You saw them where they were at, Lord, and you used a man to be your spokesperson. A hopeless situation. And I look at Chad, a man so full of anger and hate and how you went after him because you loved him, because you had a purpose for his life. You called him, Lord, into your kingdom, and you're calling right now the same way. And I pray for each person here this morning that they would model what Chad did. They're hearing your voice in their language. You're speaking. It's time to put your faith in me. It's time that you put all your trust in Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one true God, because I have forgiven you of your sins. I want, I want to be your leader. I want to be what's most important in your life. Is that you this morning? Would you say, yep, that's me? If that's you, would you put your hand up so I can pray for you real quick? Can we just take a minute here? That's me. I'm like Chad, man. I've been running. I've been doing my own thing. And God is not that priority. Yeah. So, Lord, as you look at each one of us, you know where we're at spiritually. We're reminded that when we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. There was a lot of calling on you down in that cave 2,000 feet underground back in 2010. I'm so glad we can call on your name in 2019. So thank you, Lord, for your hand upon our lives. In Jesus' name.